Programming Throwdown, episode 171, Compilers and Interpreters. Take it away, Jason. Hey, everybody. Um, this is uh, super exciting. We, we got this request from a listener. Um, maybe later on the show, I'll find out, remind myself who it was. But um, you know, they said, how about you folks do compilers and interpreters? Um, I can't believe we haven't done this episode. It seems so pivotal to uh, to everything we do uh, in software engineering. Um, yeah, but, sure. but yeah, here we are to uh, <laughs> to uh, lead the way. I-, I have to confess, I don't know as much about compilers and interpreters as Patrick, so Patrick's really going to carry oh, no. the water here, but I will add color commentary as appropriate. Um. And before we get into that, I wanted to talk about monitor setups for a little bit. So I I was working next to somebody who had three monitors, like side by side by side, and they had three different things going on. You know, like they had one was for coding, another one was for email. And I thought this was really compelling. I thought, oh, this is a, a great idea. And uh, I just can't get myself to do it. Basically, I just have to have just one thing in front of me and uh, and and just uh, keep alt tabbing to go to different things. I'm not I haven't figured out how to, you know, drag from one desk screen to the other and, and do all of that. Um, what is your setup? Do you have, you know, like an array of monitors or what? What do you do? Yeah, eight. No, honestly. <laughs> I, I do all my programming in VR, so uh, I just have, <laughs> That's I have right. as many as I actually do look for it. I think that'll be cool one day, one day. Um, yeah. That day is not today. Um, I just have one big one, uh, but I also have an iPad off to the side that I use for for my conferencing, uh, for video conferencing. Um, that works well for me. So it, I guess it's technically two, but one big one for sort of similar reasons to what you're saying. Like the, Normally, if you have two monitors, you just get them extra wide or on top of each other, which is too much versus one big monitor. I feel you don't end up with that awkward split in the middle or have to shift one far to the side. Right. I will say for people who do like simulation race games or flight games, having three for a gaming setup would be really cool because you're one thing over three. And the people who do, of course, the you know stock trading where they're actually just it, it's mostly focused on one task, right? Like they're all of it is related. There's just lots of you know dials and metrics it's akin to i think like a cockpit in an airplane where Mm -hmm. there's many many indicators some are lower priority but they're kind of very related to a singular task to me it seems a little bit different like when you're doing your programming email is maybe that's not fair i don't really know i've never been those other things but it feels like a different task slack or email they feel different to the task of coding and so uh, yeah, I'm I'm with you. Like, I don't feel compelled to have them up on the side. Yeah, you know, I used to do. Um, I used to have a my laptop. So, like, my laptop right now is just mirroring the screen of of the main main display. I used to have it kind of like what you're saying, where it was sort of a secondary screen. But um, I found myself not paying attention in meetings, even when I should be, and. Uh, um, and I, just, I kind of couldn't do that. I, I guess, well, I mean, isn't this like a trope that people can't actually multitask? We just sequentially singular task. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, uh, um, but yeah, I mean, I do envy the people who can have like three different screens on and not be distracted. I will say, I, 
I do find I, I it's not all bad. I think if you occasionally need like a paper or a document or you're implementing an algorithm and you want to consult something or the few times I've had the kind of I'm generating some kind of output or whatever that's visual. Um, it's very cool to have a s- extra real estate where when I update something and click, you know, test, I can sort of still see the code, but see the results and, you know, up inside, it, you know, screen real estate can be very, very useful. So I'll never sort of say something bad against someone who who wants to have more screens, but the variety is, yeah, it's, it is very interesting. Yeah. I wonder, um, you know, now that I'm working from home, it's less of an issue, but when I was going into the office, I was running into problems where, you know, my home monitor and my office monitor aren't the same. And so, you know, it wouldn't quite extend the desktop the right way and things would get all messed up. That's the thing I've been picky about is I have my monitor pretty high. I'm, I'm fairly tall. So, um, I want, you know, my monitor nice and high. So I either put little plastic risers or put it on a monitor arm and lift it up. So I have it higher than I think what I see a lot of other people do just because it feels unnatural to me. All right. We have to have a, we have to have a bake off here. My monitor is on a, I'm trying to eyeball it. Maybe like an eight inch riser. What about you? Oh, I'm trying. Like from the bottom of my screen, I'm like at a uh, like a foot. Like, yeah. oh wow. Okay, that's even bigger. I might be, yeah, a little bit more than eight inches, but yeah, that is pretty tall. So, like the when you look at your monitor at eye level, are you looking yeah. at the center of it? I, I wish or? it's not quite that high. The monitor, I'm going to go quite that high. So it's uh, yeah, I'm looking at like just above, somewhere like sixty percent up from the bottom. Yeah. Okay, it makes sense. Yeah, I'm about maybe like seventy five or so. Up from the bottom. But yeah, if I didn't have any riser, the monitor, like the, my eye level would be above the top of the monitor. It's just, yeah, but, but I see people do that all the time. I don't, I, I can't. <laughs> yeah. It's like, um, I think your neck would get hurt. I think if you do, if you keep it like that. What I want to try is one of the very wide curved monitors. I think that would be really cool. Yeah. You know, I've, I've tried it. I, I have one, um, um, at work and it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I will say that, uh, the one I have, um, the refresh rate isn't as good. Uh, um, it's not, it's not like, you know, a deal breaker or anything, but you do like, if you have one monitor, it has twice the refresh rate of the other. It can kind of like, yeah, sure. it's like when you're at the store and all the differences between the TVs are so noticeable, but you <laughs> take it home and totally lose your frame of reference. Right. So if you have like a four to three aspect ratio or whatever, like not a 1080p widescreen, 16 to nine, but like if it's curved left and right, does it also curve up and down if you get a nice tall one? Like, or I, I don't, is like on a sphere? I've never looked it up. Oh, I guess I should. The one I have, I'm looking at it right now. Um, it's it's curved, but just, you know, it's just curved like a, like a cylinder. It's curved like a cylinder. Okay. Yeah. And okay. but it's very wide and not very tall. So the aspect uh, ratio is not it's not HD aspect ratio. It's much wider. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think I would want one that yeah. I think I just want like a very large, like probably 8K, but like, you know, big. But then I wouldn't actually run it, you know, I would everything would be scaled up just so it's a comfortable eyesight thing. I think yeah. 8K would be too small at like <laughs> minimum resolution or whatever. Yeah, right. Um, but yeah, folks out there, let us know your monitor setup. I'm curious. I do feel like I could do better. Um, and uh, yeah, curious to know what what people's setups are out there. Just chat us, email us, post in Discord. 
Um, Discord is is getting more popular. So people posting some funny jokes. There was this video of this professor pranking his class, which I thought was hilarious. So thanks. Wait, for wait, what? A professor ranked to their class? Okay, I had to go on Discord. But pranking their class. Oh, yeah. pranking! I just said ranking. I was like, that's, I was like, oh. <laughs> 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 you, yes, we all know that they do that, but they're not supposed to actually do it. RateMyStudents.com, new website. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll jump over to the news of the show. Starting off since last time, uh, I mentioned this, and then Jason was excited about it as well. So, so I figure we'll talk about it here. Uh, I the headlines, everyone's probably seen them, but but I feel like it's pretty cool for for something that is a a memorable part of my childhood, which is being absolutely crushed and being terrible at the game of Tetris. Um, but but now uh, there has been someone who has beaten Tetris. Actually, as of recording this show, I think two people have done it. Uh, so the world record didn't last very long after lasting for years and years. Um, but Blue Scooty, I think the first name is is Willis, uh, beat Tetris first, not at the earliest possible time, which was accomplished now, but uh, did beat it. And here, actually, the the reason why I think it, it it's worth mentioning on the show, aside from just being a cool cool thing, and I I linked the the video there that is the first place I saw it. Um, but it's interesting how they define beat here. So when you know Tetris was originally built, they didn't actually have an end game in mind, which is kind of unusual. It would just play faster and faster, and I, I guess the assumption was just it would play so fast you couldn't possibly keep going, and so eventually right. you would die. Um, a lot of games actually of that era are like that. Like you know, Donkey Kong, actually, uh, in Donkey Kong, the the amount of time you have to finish the level goes down every time you have completed a full revolution of all the levels, and basically you get to a point where there just literally isn't enough time to finish the first level, uh, even if you're frame perfect, and that's just how it ends. So Tetris, I I guess, gets faster and faster. And then at some point, it basically kind of caps out. Like, it it just doesn't go any faster. Um, And for a long time, uh, people would get to that area, uh, that that speed, and then just sort of, you know, die pretty quickly. If their their row count was low, they would be able to, you know, know, manage to maybe get a few more lines cleared and then die. But then recently, people discovered a new way of pounding, uh, (laughs) tapping the, uh, uh, you know, controller faster and faster. Uh, with this crazy two-handed technique and yeah. um, they've been able to go faster and faster and began to discover, which I guess people had figured out via, you know, tool assisted speed running. So they, they had kind of known this would happen, but humans began to be able to get there, which is levels where, you know, incrementing the color palette left the predefined color palette and would start using actually machine instructions as the color selection, which would result in just really ill-formed colors that made it even more difficult but then eventually a portion of memory would be accessed that would just cause basically uh, you know, a, a corruption of, of the data. And so uh, when that happens, the game, the game just crashes and stops and just hangs. Um, and so this is what uh, Blue Scooty managed to do was to, to basically cause the game to try to execute code that wasn't code uh, and then hung the game. And so first person to do that, it's, just, it's crazy. It's very fascinating. Uh, it's also... And it's the same, you know, as Jason was mentioning, sort of frame perfect analysis for uh, Super Mario Brothers is some any sort of speed running game that is from around that era, the amount of analysis and reverse engineering that goes into it. And there are even patched versions of the game so that like it doesn't get weird and you can keep playing or, you know, just other things where people really, really understand the mechanisms that, uh, you know, take place at this end game and the amount of analysis, I'm sure. 
the programmers at the time had no idea that, you know, for 30 years, 40 years, people would be uh, sort of thinking about uh, what that code that they wrote in the back of a cubicle, you know, somewhere and, and turned out. Yeah, it's totally wild, right? I think, uh, yeah, the, uh, the, yeah, that, that whole thing where they, they do this crazy, I mean, you really have to see it almost in slow motion this way with two hands. So, so I, I, the idea is every frame, you know, in Tetris, there's no inertia or momentum or anything like that with the, with the pieces. So, you know, every frame, if you could get like a press left and a stop pressing left in those two frames, then you can move it over um, one whole column. And uh, and so, yeah, they do this weird thing where I guess they they hit the joystick from the bottom. Um, so in other words, like if you imagine like just pressing with your thumb on a button, like there's only so fast your thumb can, you know, press and release this button. But then I guess they're saying, well, part, you know, part of that is just like the mechanics of your body. So what if like you had another thumb kind of on the bottom of the controller? And so one thumb is pressing and releasing, but then the other thumb is pressing the bottom into the first thumb. And like, I guess by doing that, you can get more presses than you could with just one, one thumb. It's, it's, it's totally crazy. You have to see it. I mean, I guess Tetris uh, lends itself to that because you... I, I I don't know. I we'd we'd have to learn more. But I guess you only have to move either left or right as long as if you don't overshoot, and you only have to rotate the piece three times in a in a direction, and then you would you know just be back. So you can only rotate it ninety degrees. So there's like a finite number of presses. If you knew exactly what you were doing, your path planning, uh, you could be very minimal inputs. Yep. Yep. Totally. Um, all right, on to Pal World, accused of being an AI product. Um, so yeah, th- so Pal World is wild. Patrick and I were talking about it before the show. Um, it really like is a great area, uh, a great uh, you know theme for a game. Basically, it's it's adult themed. Po- well, not adult theme. That means something totally different. <laughs> <laughs> Pokemon with guns. It's Pokemon with guns, and uh, they're just they're. I think they're also just really aggressive you know, looking, you know, you could actually, um, catch people in the pokeballs and sell them like, uh, <laughs> so, uh, it, it's basically, uh, you know, a crazy, you know, much more like, like Mad Max it's Mad Max meets Pokemon. Um, uh, it's a great idea of a theme. Um, this article is really interesting. Patrick actually found this, um, and it's 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 claiming that a lot of the assets are AI generated, um, but they have no hard evidence. And so I guess, you know, there's really like two things that I took away from this. You know, one is that, you know, the generative AI is really, you know, here to stay. It's not going anywhere. Um, you know, I, I mean, the days of downloading like 30 gigabytes of MP3s when you buy a game, I feel like those days are very short lived. I think even if you did hire um, a a voice actor, you know, you would almost certainly want to do some type of capture of their voice, and and if nothing else, just to reduce the storage costs and you know, and generate their voice dynamically. Um, so that's definitely here. And then the the other thing is, you know, it's amazing that they they don't know because you know I've seen a lot of papers and other. Um, you know, reports where you can 
see how something is is generated by an AI. Um, but but I guess you know they have a point that it's really hard to prove it. Um, <clears throat> you know, I I think um, the examples I saw were interesting. Like for example, if you see a and this isn't a power world thing, but if you see a picture of a face, um, and the earrings don't match. You know, if it's a woman's face or man's face, anyone's face, and the earrings, you know, they're wearing earrings and they don't match, that's a sign that it's generative AI because it's hard for the AI to um to to get that symmetry right. Um but um but but you know they haven't really found anything like this here. And it, it might be just that the person is you know starting with uh, an AI model and then just as inspiration, but then putting a human touch on it and it makes it very hard to to track. So okay, a couple of things. Uh, if you're going to commit a crime, put on mismatched earrings and like do all the tips that are generative. So if someone captures you on the <laughs> camera, you could be like, "That's clearly not me," because it's like That's the- clearly an AI. <laughs> so I, I, I sense a trend where people people do this. Uh, second, second, a, a hat tip here to Ace Rolla. Uh, Ace Rolla does a YouTube video on shaders, actually. Uh, anyways, and on Twitter, oh X is where where I sort of first saw this uh, controversy rising up. Um, but if you've never checked out checked out uh, him, ch- check it out, Ace Rolla. Um, and then, yeah, I I think Jason's right. He's like, wait, first of all, does it matter, like if it's generative AI or not? And the answer is maybe. And it's sort of you know gets into one of those gray areas. If it's fun, it's fun. But at the same time there are people trying to put work into the craft right it goes back to that debate which you know i don't think there's there is an singular answer to but you know the difference between ikea furniture and you know anderson real wood you know piece of furniture they're both furniture but you know you could kind of talk at length about you know (laughs) various pros or cons of, of each and so i think in the end you know as I, I don't know that even they have to be forthright or, or honest about what they did. They just, you know, probably shouldn't go around claiming that it's high art or, you know, that, that, you know, they somehow that there's, you know, tons of people behind it, right? If you tried to say, Hey, you should support this game because this took a lot of work and it didn't, then, you know, there's like a sort of ethics problem. But as far as, you know, as long as if I think right now they're not saying anything, they're just, just not talking. Uh, it's you know been a kind of overnight sensation then i i personally yeah it's kind of interesting but i don't know that i have a specific problem with it yeah i i think uh as a as a coder it's hard to really relate right like uh like like all of our code that we've done on open source you know like in my case like eternal terminal and mame hub and all these things they're all they're all public repos and so, you know, AI is scanning those and using them to build GitHub Copilot and all these things, right? So in a way, they're kind of like copying it from me, but it's okay because I, I copied it from Stack Overflow. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, but, 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 you know, artists don't, don't feel the same way. Um, <laughs> but, but that's not, but that's not, but if I'm not, I'm not an artist, so I can't speak authoritatively, but it's very common when people are learning to take inspiration, to practice copying and to understand what it takes, you know, to make the paintings, the paintings. And it's, it's not good to, to copy too much, but to be derivative, or you can even see sort of the lineage of how artists build on other artists' concepts and extend them and sort of push them forward. And so, 
there's this very fine line between ripping off, you know, uh, Pokemon characters. Although if you look other places like Digimon, there's a lot of, you know, Digimon monsters that look very similar and the same kind of brouhaha didn't get derailed. Well, maybe it did. I was probably too young um, to remember, but uh, you know, it, I don't know. There's a lot of and the music. It's the same way, right? Everyone's sort of taking riffs and ideas and from each other. And it's, you know, there's been court cases recently where it's, I don't know the answer. It sure sounds really similar, but then again, you know, it's it's a nice sounding thing. If you just sit there and play music until you find something nice, you may play something that someone else has already figured out before. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is maybe... I'm trying to think if there's other examples before I say this, but I don't really think so. I mean, let's say this is all AI generated. Somebody basically threw all the Pokemon characters over of all time into some AI model, and now they're able to spit out more Pokemon characters. Um, you know, this is really the first time where we've seen like some huge commercial success come out of some generative AI thing. Like, you know, like people are so worried about, you know, fake, fake things. Like, like you're, you're trying to impersonate a, you know, a politician or something like that. Um, but this is, you know, not really that. I mean, you know, in terms of like the, the incentive is not to impersonate Pokemon. The incentive is actually the opposite. It's to generate something that has plausible deniability that it came from Pokemon. <laughs> I mean, yeah, how many go on the app store? How many flappy bird butt with a, you know, oh, trash can? So true. Right? Like, and you, but the, to Jason's point, those don't experience the sort of commercial success. The numbers I've seen are absolutely crazy for how many people have bought this game. I haven't bought it yet. Uh, I've, yeah, I'm tempted because it actually does look hilarious. Uh, but, uh, yeah. My neighbors I, are actually going to going to play it, so I, I'm feeling kind of compelled to buy it. <laughs> um, All right. Well, hard pivoting off of this one, I found a blog article here, which is something that's been a sort of I don't even know how to call it, not a meme in like a picture with an image macro or whatever pasted over top of it, um, but just a sort of meme like going around, which is kind of absolutely silly ways to solve determining whether a number is even or odd. And so I linked the link the blob here. The title of the blog, it says the blog's name is Blabbin, but this is the only post I saw on on this blog. So uh, I, I think a new blog. But anyway, the link is uh, will be in the show notes. Um, but this person was saying they saw on TikTok someone get kind of ripped, which again, I'm not on TikTok. So I, I can't, this is third hand at this point, but uh, getting ripped for saying that they determined if a number is even or odd by basically a bunch of if else statements. So if number is one, <laughs> odd. if number is two, that's even if number is three, that's odd. Oh, I'm going to get messed up already. Uh, most people would say, oh, well, do you just use a modulus operator? If you know what a modulus operator is, or, oh, you use, you know, a uh, bitwise and with the, you know, first least significant bit just being one and then that'll tell you right? there's like a number of ways to to kind of do this check um and most people would be expected as like a test of your language knowledge to to know what the modulus operator is at minimum or bit masking depending on the context um but this person decided to in the blog decided to take it on themselves to for a 32-bit number which is four billion different numbers right if statements and the the interesting part and the reason why i bring it up is first just the absurdity of it um, they decided to write it in C with what I sort of sounds like some tongue in cheek uh, 
justification initially. Um, but what they did, which is an actual interesting thing to learn to do and, you know, on topic a bit for us today is to do code generation. And so they, you know, wrote a simple program, far simpler than a 4 billion line program to generate all of the if statements automatically. Um, and that way they, you know, could produce that output. And, and what does that take, which is a useful skill to be able to know how to do, because there are times when uh, doing not that, but <laughs> other code generation, writing yeah. code to make code is very useful. That didn't work. The compiler, uh, C compiler didn't like that, that many lines. So then it decided to output raw assembly uh, and actually did get it to work and I guess said it was very performant. If you think about it, I, I, it, it's almost just a big lookup table and you can just, there are jump tables. So you can just basically jump to a set offset. So if you know each if else statement is two bytes and you had a very clever assembler or whatever, you could just jump, you know, based on the number that many, you know, memory offsets times two or, or whatever. So I can imagine it being very, very efficient uh, and then just having a table where it either outputs zero or one. Um, but yeah, so they actually did manage to make assembly that they say works. Of course, it's a, well, I guess we could figure out four gigabyte file roughly. Um, so it's yes. not gigantic executable. Um, 40 gigabyte. <laughs> ridiculous in that like there, this is of course the, I don't want to say, this is a very silly way to solve whether a number is even or odd. Um, but actually leads to some, some kind of interesting uh, computer science uh, exercises in doing this. And then, of course, people responded, can you do it for 64-bit numbers? And the answer is no. <laughs> yeah. I love how this, uh, this this is the only post in this person's blog. <laughs> That's okay. You got to post something up when you have a cool idea and you want to show people. Like, I, I don't fault them. No, yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I I didn't mean that sarcastic. Me, I, I literally love that this person. Uh, oh. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not like 10 posts about, like, like, hire me or like self aggrandizing or any of that. It's just literally like, here's this cool thing that I did. Boom. Blog. I will say though, that's like a tough act to follow. So I don't know what you make post number two. That's true. Yeah. I mean, you really can't just start a new blog. It's been a month now and he hasn't made a post. (laughs) Um, That is awesome. Um, All right. My next news is seamless M4T. Have you seen this Patrick? No. uh Uh-uh. This thing is freaking wild. So this is what I use to translate the episode. So if you haven't done this oh. yet, um, go to programmingthrowdown.com. Um, depending on a bunch of factors, the very latest episode might not have this. But just go back an episode and you can listen to us in Mandarin Chinese. <laughs> so it's, it's totally freaking wild. So basically the way this works is it um it does the uh speech to text now like you have to have a separate file for each person you have to have a way of separating uh or or in our case you know we have um you know we have a separate mp3 for each person on the show um but you know it, it converts that to text and then it translates the text to other languages and then it goes from that language's text to you know one of several voices um, that they have for each language, and so, um, um, and so the, the reason why they're calling it seamless is I don't think that it's end to end learned, but it might be. But um, but you know it is separate sort of modules, um, but the API and all of that is 
extremely simple. I mean, you basically just say, here's audio and I want to get back text or I want to get back text and audio in another language. Um, I tried at first translating English to English. So it went from (laughs) us to robot us. Um, That was really entertaining. Um, And then uh, I started picking other languages. So um, this is amazing. I mean, it's amazing that it's free. Um, It's totally open source. Anyone can use it. Um, I actually bought for Black Friday a few months ago a sixteen uh, a GPU at sixteen gigs of VRAM. Uh, that's the bare minimum you need to run this model. Um, but if you don't have that, that's totally fine. Um, I also got this to run on Google Cloud Platform, and you pay about fifty cents an hour, I think, oh, to wow. rent one of that's those. Yeah, very reasonable. Um, you can even now they have something where if it's idle for so many hours, it shuts itself off. So you don't have to worry about forgetting about it and getting a $500 bill or something at the end of the month. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah, all of that is, is super convenient. Um, so you can run it on Google cloud. There's also Google Colab. Um, you can run it there. There's some 16 uh, gig VRAM GPUs there. I don't know if the free plan would work, but um, the paid plan is only 10 bucks a month. Um, so yeah, check this out. I mean, it's amazing. I will say that the there's two modes. There's a batch mode and a streaming mode. The batch mode loads everything into memory. So you, know, you can really only use it for like a 10 second file or something like that. Um, you know, the streaming mode is really where it's at. Um, the documentation is still pretty nascent um what i found really useful was um they gave a tutorial at nurips which is a ai conference um they they did a whole tutorial on uh seamless m4t and you can watch the video and and follow along as if you were at the conference for free i was able to find that so um so check it out uh check out the tutorial um i feel like this is really on the vanguard of something super exciting um, I'm looking into, you know, can we clone our voices? Cause if we could actually, if it could be Mandarin Chinese, but it sounds like us, that would be even better. It's like a, t- but boy, your earrings match. <laughs> it's going to be like the deep fake Jason, but yeah, speaking Mandarin. Yeah. So if, if, uh, in a few months you might hear Patrick and I in Mandarin, maybe we'll swap out an episode just for fun and see if people notice. <laughs> I hope people notice. Uh, no, no, an old, an old episode. Oh, oh, I see, I see, I see. Um, you know, I people focus like the machine learning stuff on the you know open AI, and and I, and I understand why. Um, and the the sort of approach to AGI, I guess, like you know, general intelligence. But I, you're right. There's a lot of stuff happening like out in the call it periphery that feels like we're really moving forward, especially once we start combining some of these things. So there's been a long work separating back speakers. People say they can't tell the difference between us. So I don't know, maybe that'll have to be like gen two of that, but you know, (laughs) having a single file separating it back and then, you know, running it through the system and, and combining it. But but also, you know, we've not, I don't know that we've talked about it, but the sort of um, nerfs and Gaussian splatting around like making 3D models from, right. you know, pictures. And right now they need kind of a lot of pictures of a specific kind, but, you know, that'll get per- progress as well. And then you can imagine the 
the sort of stable diffusion feeding into those things, like there's like a lot of interesting sort of like one, two iteration away. Um, and, and, you know, probably requiring some leaps there because it's, it's not sort of like gluing normal software together, but, uh, yeah, there's a lot of exciting stuff happening that I think gets missed for the focus on LLMs. Yeah. I actually am more excited about diffusion models and LLMs. Um, we should do a we should do a whole show on diffusion models. All right. Well, we know a person who could probably speak to that. It's not uh, me. Oh. <laughs> I'm just saying you. Yeah, I was I was wondering if we knew a third person. Oh, um, but um, but yeah, you know, have you seen the diffusion model with Bomberman? No. Uh. Uh-uh. Yeah. So basically, okay. Let me just do a really quick, and then we'll we'll dedicate a show to this. The way diffusion models work is. You have a bunch of references. So in the case of Mario or Bomberman or any of these games, you have levels that were created by humans, right? That's your reference. And you want to create more of those, right? So what you do is you um you corrupt the the um you corrupt the references, in this case the Bomberman levels, you corrupt them, but your the way you corrupt them is reversible. So whatever you do, you know the way, the exact way to undo it. And then you train a model to reverse the corruption. All right. Um, And then once you have that model trained, you give that model like random noise, like levels that are complete garbage, and you just tell it to reverse the corruption and you tell it to do it again and again and again. And you tell it to reverse the corruption until it gets stuck in a cycle. Um, when it gets stuck in a cycle, you say it's done, and uh, and that's your Bomberman level. It does, and it does it. It should have guarantees on like playability, like not having like something you can't reach or. So it doesn't. You know, it's it's all just AI. So there's no guarantees of anything. You'd you'd have to do some fine tuning afterwards. Okay. But but it's like scarily, like true to form. You know, like uh, yeah. yeah. I can't remember if they, if they, um, I can't remember if they wrote something to throw out the levels, you know, like they wrote basically a validator and threw out uh, all the bad yeah. levels or if they just like, you know, they, they didn't actually make a real game with it. It was a research paper. So they might've not bothered to do that, but, um, but you see the levels and it's like, yeah, that looks, that looks pretty cool. Like I could see how that could be kind of a fun Bomberman level. Well, you should save it for the diffusion, but I guess like there's like some randomness that goes into how you select each operation. So I guess almost like backtracking, you could just naively get towards the end and sort of try to go back and, and, you know, assign some attempts or whatever. And, you know, oh, this, you know, do a validation at the end. Like, did I get a good level? Did I get a, you know, validatable level? Yep. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Oh man, it's going to be cool. The future is scary. We're all going to be out of jobs. The future is super scary. I mean, I definitely wouldn't want to be in the games industry. I mean, as an engineer, you would be fine. But if you are a concept artist or, you know, a voice actor or something like that, I mean, it's 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 going to be. Uh, there are some different yeah, heads of studios and stuff coming out and basically forecasting like reduced need for a lot of those things. Um, people talking about, you know, for doing like cold calling and sales calls and informational sessions, you know, maybe reduce need for folks there. Um, And then, you know, also some places are getting flooded. There's always been a sort of like 
low bar Kindle book, ebook, you know, coloring book, drawing, just like, you know, low effort sort of written word kind of stuff. And all of that too, I think is uh, this AI stuff is sort of competing with not the, you know, top tier stuff, but the sort of like low tier, low effort people turning those out, hoping one or two people buy them or whatever, which has proven successful. I think, I think there's a a threat to those not not that that's going to be a big problem but once they start targeting people who are you know higher up the the food chain there that's that's going to be a a struggle and i will weirdly segue that into our book of the show from (laughs) high quality books that are that are definitely not ai generated that's Uh, right so my first one i tried i might have recommended it before if i did well it's worth a second recommendation i tried looking but after 171 shows it's a it's a bit of a process to to try to search for it um and that is foundation by isaac as isaac asimov which is a uh, actually many book series um and the first one is you know great place to start and recently this became a tv show which i think renewed some interest the tv show doesn't follow the the book super closely. Um, but if you've never uh, read some of the classic science fiction, it's really like a fascinating trip to see how close some of the stuff got from people writing long before, you know, computers were a thing, much less mobile phones. Some stuff is just like laughably wrong. And some stuff is just like, wow, that's eerily the same issues we're dealing with today and so um reading classic science fiction is is uh, something worth doing if you've never tried it before and the foundation series is a i feel like a pretty formative uh series of science fiction and uh just to give people flavor since i've not said anything actually about the book is the idea is there's a an, an empire ruling the galaxy and um there's concern that that this uh this, these people raise that the empire is is going to collapse and it's going to cause you know humanity basically to be set back and you know and, and really be a struggle and everyone's going to be bad off and so they've created a a sort of way to help shortcut that to make it better but of course the empire itself is very unhappy with this and the whole prediction that this was going to happen is this of course fake but uh, it sounds very convincing psycho history which is this idea that you cannot predict individuals but that you know sort of like a, i think the analogy they use is like a gas you can predict a lot of statistics about gases even though an individual molecule in a gas is is you know very very difficult to predict and so through that they can kind of predict the course of human history and and how things will go and make updates and help keep it on, you know, a plan that will, will, you know, sort of benefit the most humans. And it's just a very interesting read in the dynamics. And so if you've never read it before, and if that sounds at all interesting, although I probably did a poor pitch of it, uh, or if you've watched a TV show and uh, maybe didn't realize it was also a book, uh, I'll pitch Foundation by Isaac Asimov. Yeah. Did you read it recently or is that when you read it? I read it actually as a teenager. So I, I, yeah. read, it, I read it a long time ago. Yeah. Same here. I have to confess, I don't remember that much of it, but I do remember having a big impression on me when I read it. I think I also had kind of forgotten I read it. And then I like looked up the sort of summary and I was like, oh, I remember. And then I actually have watched, uh, I think there's a couple seasons now of the TV show. And I will say, I, 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 you know, it's a pretty... A dark, dark things so that you know, not watch with kids, but um, pursuing the same kinds of ideas. And I thought, I thought I like it, even though it doesn't follow the book that closely. It uses some of the concepts and the the sort of setup to kind of examine some some of different ideas, but in a similar sort of some similar vein. 
Cool. Yeah, definitely. If folks haven't read that, definitely give it a read. Uh, it's a great series. Um, my book of the show is Propaganda by Edward Bernays. So this uh, this is a fascinating book. Um, it's it's so wild that I almost, you know, I really, I, I wouldn't take it all as ground truth, really. I mean, I mean, a book about propaganda might be propaganda. You know, it's kind of like meta, but um, <laughs> um, um, <laughs> but basically the premise, which they get right into in the book, is that is that um, um, and again, this is my this is not my theory on life, but that basically, you know, democracy can't work, um, and and so you really need to have just like a few few different ideas to follow that it can't just be a total free-for-all i mean a good example is the is the app store that patrick was talking about where there's like a million knockoffs like you could search pretty much any word in the dictionary and you're going to find a video game based on that word and they're all kind of cookie cutter and and there's no it's very hard to get noticed in the app store or to find good content um and so you're really relying on the you know editor's picks. And so in a way, it's like you have this really democratic platform, but what it really degenerates to is just like a handful of editor's picks and and folks who have a big audience already and all of that. Um, and so the the claim by the book by the propaganda book is that you know there's just so much content, and this was written a hundred years ago, um, nineteen twenty eight. Yeah, there's just there's so many clubs that you could be a part of. There's just so much, so many choices, so many brands, so many of this, so many of that. Um, that really propaganda is the way by which like 90% of your options get filtered out and you can just focus on the top 10%. So it almost becomes like a um a way to ante in. It's like, okay, you know, you have to build this propaganda machine to 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 be part of of the system and and uh and everyone who doesn't do that ends up just getting kind of lost right um you know and it dives into you know how propaganda works as a bunch of examples um some of them were pretty mind blowing um yeah i won't spoil them but um maybe i'll spoil one there's <clears throat> there's this cigarette company that um, they were under a lot of pressure. There were a lot of moms who didn't want their uh, sons and daughters smoking because they had heard about you know all these issues. I don't know if lung cancer was a really known entity in the 1920s, but they, but you know they 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 thought there were health issues, and so they were able to like start up this like uh, women's liberation march sponsored by Marlboro <laughs> and. Uh, they basically tapped into the women's liberation movement of the 1920s um, as sort of like a back pressure, uh, um, you know, against like this, like kind of like mothers against smoking group. And and I, the whole thing is is just blowing my mind. I mean, it goes without saying that I, I think that's fair to say Patrick and I are like, what would you say? It's like task oriented in the sense of like we don't, we're not. We're definitely not master manipulators. Uh, we're not. Uh, we're not like these kind of people. Um, you know, uh, Patrick doesn't even have a social media account. Oops. I barely use my social media account. Um, 
Um, and so for me, this is like a whole different dimension to, you know, humanity, really. Um, I mean, it's something that I never would have really considered or thought of if I hadn't been recommended this book. So uh, I found it absolutely fascinating. Um, highly recommend it. Uh, very interesting read. Yeah, I think sometimes words get uh, like artificially intense negative things. So I think like some of these things you're, you're just saying, the other one I'll, I'll kind of by analogy or, or by similarity talk about is politics. So like people talk about, I don't want politics in the office. It's like, well, you need to be aware, <laughs> regardless of whether you want to quote unquote play politics, politics is a like human way of, you know, that things happen and decisions get made and, you know, backdoor, backroom decisions, you know, these kinds of, you have to be aware of them if you, you know, want to kind of like at least have some modicum of control over, over what happens. And I think by extension, propaganda similar, it's, you know, it has a very, very negative tone to it, but it, I mean, it's, it's a way of lots of people doing stuff. They may not see it as propaganda, right? They just see it as, Hey, I'm trying to get my ideas across or find a way to make people more open to this. Um, but sort of calling it out and putting a label on it and saying how common it is, is a, as a way of sort of engaging with it. Yeah. And it turns out actually the negative connotation to prop to the word propaganda is also propaganda. <laughs> so the, the word they actually talk about this, the root of the word propaganda comes from the, um, the Catholic church in like the 1600s had a, like a part of seminary where they were kind of teaching priests and, and, and bishops and cardinals um, about how to kind of spread uh, Catholicism. And I think that's where the word actually comes from. And then, uh, you know, and, and then I think, uh, and so at that time it had a positive connotation and I think it, the connotation flipped over time as, as a society, we got kind of like uh no, not happy with like proselytizing and then and then and then now it's like really like commercial propaganda and and all of that um so yeah like the propaganda i think collided headfirst into the enlightenment and lost when it comes to you know <laughs> reputation as a word um but yeah it's it's the, yeah but the book is totally mind-blowing highly recommend people people read it. And, and to patrick's point um and, and we talked about this in the marketing episode we had an episode with a gentleman from marketing you know, like you have to, uh, I'll give you a, a really concrete example. You know, I made that game AI hero, right? Um, I made it totally free. Um, you know, there's no ads, there's no in-app purchases or anything like that. Um, you know, I told my friends and family about it, all of that. And it has, I didn't check recently, but it has, I think like a hundred downloads or something like that. Um, and now, you know, I made it, you know, to be frank, I kind of made it for myself. I mean, so I, I'm not out there trying to get a bunch of downloads, but I was even still surprised that it got such such uh, such little notice. Um, and it really just doubles down on that point that you know you have to get a propaganda cycle going, a marketing cycle going for anything that you want to have mass appeal. Otherwise, um, there's just there's just there's just too much content out there. Um, so, so yeah, it's not a propaganda marketing, you know, these aren't words that you should be afraid of. Um, I'll say that it's not something that 
at least I'm, I don't know about Patrick, but it's not something that I personally am very good at. It's definitely something where I try to partner with other people who are much better at it than I am. Um, but, uh, but it's something that, you know, I think we all should really appreciate. It is very important. You know, if I did want AI hero to, to, to get, you know, a ton of people, you know, I would have to go about things very differently. I think, you know, I'd have to be posting regularly on Reddit. I'd, I'd have to figure out some way to maybe gin up some controversy. Maybe I would make a fake post saying that it's generative AI, you know, pretending to be somebody else <laughs> attacking me. For, for using generative AI. I don't know, but the, I mean, this is just from reading the book. There's a million things you could do to amp up your your thing, whatever it is. But if you don't do that, probably no one's going to pay attention. And, and that's true in, in politics. You know, if you make a political party, nobody's really going to care. Um, it's true in 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 most things. So, so uh, yeah, it's, it's just a fact of life. Yeah, I think there's a lot to say here, but, but probably just a... Uh... Move on for now. So you can <laughs> All right, yeah. keep moving forward. So time for tool of the show. All right. What's your tool? Uh, not a tool, a game, uh, but nice. uh, classic Patrick cop out. Mine is, I've been getting into these recently, but this is the one that I sort of encountered first, which is the room. This is pretty old at this point. So most people have probably played it before. If not, you know, I would encourage you to check one of them out. Often they're very cheap or free on sort of Android, iOS. I think there's a Steam version, probably a web version somewhere. But the idea is basically uh, kind of like an escape room in an app, uh, you know, just like without without the time limit, you just like a series of puzzles um, and you interact with them. And for me, I've actually never done an escape room. Uh, I, I want to. I just like it just hasn't been a thing that I've, I've been able to do. But I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by the concept. And these games are just like an easy way to spend a few minutes sort of playing with something and trying to figure it out. I will say in the genre, some games do it better or worse. And I have my own particular sort of like i don't like things that are you're just supposed to try random stuff until they happen there should be some clue that you can look for and it can be obscure or it could be that you have to pay attention or whatever but sometimes it fall into like how was i supposed to know that like you know there's no indication that you're supposed to you know touch the top of the windowsill and like it's going to be movable uh it's like okay but but so sometimes you fall into this but anyways um I guess a, a pitch for these kinds of puzzle escape room games uh, in general. And there's, there's many in the, in the genre, but um, for me, the first one that I sort of bumped into was the room series. I think there's like now four or five in the series. Um, but, you know, shout out to the the original one. Um, and if you've never played one before, uh, you know, check it out. Yeah, totally. I've played the room. I think it's great. A lot of fun. Um, it taps into your common sense. So yeah, you do have some intuition into what the answer of the puzzle, the answer to the puzzle is. Um, my tool of the show is also somewhat of a cop out because we've had them on the show before. We did, in fact, had a whole episode dedicated to Incredibuild. But you know, I was building uh, a new version of Meme Hub on my on my uh, on my house today. I guess because it's like using all the desktops in the house, which is kind of the point of the tool. Um, and I just thought to myself, man, this is such an amazing tool. I've used it for so many years for free. Um, you know, if you're using it for your home use, it's not for professional use, it's totally free. Um, that I feel like I felt like they deserve another shout out after so many years. Um, we've gotten tons of emails from folks who have uh you know got their company to buy Incredibuild and all of that. So we have been able to drive some business to them, which I, I'm really proud of. 
Um, but yeah, it's incredible. If it basically the way it works is it hooks into your build system. It even has plugins for Visual Studio. So if you're building on Visual Studio, it works. Um, if not, it has you know it hooks into GCC and all that stuff. Um, and you just instead of you know choosing build solution from Visual Studio, you choose you know start Incredibuild. And uh, I have the Incredibuild agent running on all the desktops here in the house, and they all just start the fans all start whirring, and uh, they all start working together to build stuff. So uh, MameHub takes. I think like two and a half hours to build. Um, but with Incredibuild, uh, you know, I can get it done in like 10 minutes or something. So um, so it's super nice and uh, highly recommend it. Very nice. Very nice. All right. Well, I think it's time for our topic, which is compilers and interpreters. Yeah, this is a request by uh, Jessica W. I won't say your last name. I know some people might be sensitive to that, but thank you so much, Jessica, for this idea. It's a great one. All right. I didn't know, you know, J- Jason sort of bowed out of like, well, that's not my my background. So, <laughs> so it kind of fell to me. And I, I I struggled a bit with the tack to take here because there's a, there's a lot to be said. This is a big, uh, you know, request. So I decided to take a stab at what I'll say is a, a sampler, you know, kind of going through a bunch of different topics in the area um, with, with some sort of high level overview. But, you know, choosing a interpreted versus compiled language, I guess you could say choosing a compiler versus interpreter. But most of the time, if you choose a language and the pros and cons of the language, you're sort of uh, choosing one of these for that. Um, but then in each of these, there's just an incredible um, depth you can go into or or not um, you know, most of the time, I guess we're, we're big believers and, and, you know, the right tool for the, for the job. So despite the fact that I may, uh, throw stones at, at Python, you know, a lot of times you're only going to run an analysis once, or, you know, it doesn't really even really matter how long it takes. And so you can get this just really big worry about speed or performance or, you know, selecting exactly the best tool. But I will say most of the programs I write are probably run less than a dozen times ever. Um, even to check them in and, and put them in at, at work, you know, and you, I, I may run it a few times, someone else may use it, we may copy and paste the code around, but any given instance is, is just not, not that. And then, and then a very few are, you know, run hundreds of times every day, and you know, or thousands of right. times, inner loops and calls and those ones. And so there's a really, a really wide range. And so um, find a few things that you're you're sort of proficient in, and I'll say well, way of disclaimer before we dive in here is just sort of like you'll see a lot of uh, internet flame wars about you know oh that that's slow because it's a you know scripting or you know don't if you're going to build a, something in Godot don't use is it GD script because it's you know it's going to be slow and it's I don't I mean if you're finding yourself in a problem and, and maybe you want to listen to some of that or being aware is good but. I feel a lot of people hesitate to take the first step and get what, you know, I'll call analysis paralysis, um, you know, from making a decision and actually better to just build something and let it suck and be slow and, and introspect why at the end of getting somewhere with it. And then, and, you know, make a follow-up choice than to never take the first step. Um, yep. Totally. There's agree. a balance there, but okay. Off, off of my soapbox. All right. <laughs> so, I guess anytime we run a program, we're talking about, you know, a processor and we were talking in the, 
Christmas episode, oh, holiday episode, um, Jason was mentioning, oh, oh, now I already forgot if it was risk V or risk five. I think risk five. Risk five. Yeah. Risk we found five. it. Yeah, risk yeah, okay, five. good. Uh, risk five and risk five is an a instruction set architecture, a, a sort of way of having computers run. And it has, I guess, what you would call machine code. So out of you know, wherever it's loading the program, probably RAM, and then it sort of loads a set of bits, right? Uh, if it's a 64-bit processor, it loads, you know, 64 bits and can kind of look through there. And part of that is the operation to perform and some instructions about to load it from a register or to load it from uh, a place in memory or or whatever. And then the processor sort of handles that. Um, and that is machine code. If you ever do like NAND to Tetris or... Uh, there's another game where you build logic gates out of NAND on your on your web browser, or you take a class in in university where they're sort of teaching you about sort of building up from like VHDL, you know, how to kind of like you know implement a processor. Uh, you'll end up realizing it really is just you know hex numbers on a screen that you you know end up getting executed in there. That that's your program, um, and every kind of family of processors has a different set of instructions, a different way of organizing those operations and to write a program in it, you know, you would have to sit there and, and really write, write, you know, a hex, you know, or you could write binary too, but you know, most people would write it in hex and that's the way we sort of think about it. Cause it gives you the nice byte delineation. Um, and you would not do that after about maybe one time of doing that, you would not want to do that anymore. And so as an example, like when, uh, we did Motorola 68 K processors, which is just, you know, one of these families when I was in, in university and we had to do this as a task, like, you know, write some, you know, machine code. And I did that once before sort of realizing, wait a minute, I'm just going to write a program to be like a crappy assembler uh, and, you know, do that. And so then that moves us to assembly language. And so assembly language is just like a very light skin over this machine code. So you're, pretty much have a one-to-one correspondence, but you're writing English symbols. So instead of hex code 47 being the move operator where you move, you know, one set of bytes to another location, you would say M-O-V, move, right? That's a lot easier. And then the registers each have names rather than just numbers like, you know, R8 or whatever for register eight. And so this is the first time we encounter what would you would call a compiler, and the compiler takes those English letters or whatever language you're writing in letters and maps them directly and emits the bytecode. So does that mean that it's reversible? Like, can you go from machine code to assembly code? Yes, great, great question. So th- th- you can, it's called disassembly. And for assembly, and I'll talk about a caveat here in a second, it's, it's pretty straightforward. So if you take a program that lives and you, and you haven't gone, we had... Oh, that was way, that was many years ago. But um, we had the, the folks from, I think, Intel in here talking about obfuscating your program codes so that people can't do that. Um, and they can't sort of like patch it or, or do what would, in video games would be hacking or, you know, in, in more critical software trying to get your keys or something. Um, but yeah, so you can do disassembly. So you can take the bytes flowing through your processor and sort of convert them back to assembly because, yeah, it's, it's a very direct mapping. Got it. Okay. Um, so the, the caveat there that, that I was already alluding to, and, and you can can help here, it's not too bad in assembly, is what I've described so far, you kind of do in, in a single pass. But that also turns out to be easier to do better than, and you know, it's frustrating, so you wouldn't want to stay there very long, which is you may want you may want to have an example where you have a, a loop. And so when you're on a loop, you want to go back in your program to somewhere previous, where to skip forward if you have an if statement. 
Um, and if you were doing what you know I described initially, and that's kind of like a single pass compiler, you would have to calculate, you know, go down, figure it out it's eight instructions for my loop. So I need to go back to that branch statement and say, jump eight instructions down. And that'd be really annoying. So what people do is implement the ability to add labels. So you can put a label, you know, end of loop. Uh, and you can say, you know, jump, JMP, and then you can put end of loop. The issue is when you're doing a single pass compiler, you're scanning down, it says jump, end of loop, but it's never seen the symbol end of loop. Uh, so it doesn't oh. know where to jump to, right? And so now you get what we call sort of a two pass compiler. So now you start to get what you would kind of think about like variable names and labels and jump statements. It's not really that much extra, but it your productivity goes way higher. And for many years, people coded an assembly with two-pass compilers. Um, and the two-pass just means first scan through to find all of the symbols that are names and their you know, locations. And then on the second pass, does the actual emit the, the machine code? And now it knows, oh, this offset is you know, this many instructions down, and it's able to produce the, the machine code. But that's it does it. Does it literally do it in two passes? Because I could also imagine like anytime you see a jump forward, you just keep track of it and then you go back and fill it in. I, I mean, but that, sure. But that's still, you can't do it in a single, it's not one pass because you have to God. go back up, right? And right, admit. Right. So uh, it's like the big O notation kind of thing. Like, how do you want to call it? Uh, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure they get pretty sophisticated. There's probably, you know, it, it's just calling out that the progression, I guess, in here. But still, these assembly languages you're you're writing in, um, you know, there's kind of some asterisk here. But for the most part, you're writing it per, you know, kind of processor. So if you want to write it on a, you know, if you're going to use an Arduino, which is, uh, I think, based on a PIC chip, then you need to use the PIC flavor of assembly. If you want to do this in, uh, you know, Motorola 68K, x86 processor, ARM processor, if you're, you know, going to run on a phone. Every one of these has a different set of instructions and therefore a different assembly language. And so again, that gets really crappy if you want to ever write for more than one thing um, or you want to go faster because you're pretty much still basically writing one line of code per instruction, um, which is going to make you very easily able to sort of intuit about sort of like runtime and complexity of things um, a little easier than a high-level language. Um, but but again, it gets, it gets kind of frustrating. And there are concepts for still it, everything that's in a high level language sort of has to be capable of being done in assembly language. So you still see things like doing function calls, so jumping to a function and pushing stuff onto the stack. For some processors, those things are strictly implemented by a higher language compiler. But some processors actually have support for that, even at the assembly language level does the, and you would sort of start to call those things complex instruction sets CISC versus risk reduced instruction set um computers and so uh there's a whole separate topic we'll sort of leave this here because <laughs> we'll go forever uh and, and move up move up the uh the family tree i guess to to higher higher level languages <clears throat> yeah that makes sense so so uh um so so every programming language like that you read about like C, C++, Java, Python, they're all considered high level. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I don't, I, there's degrees to that, I guess, you know, you, but at least when I sort of started learning about this and, you know, they shift over time, right. 
there was early on, it was you writing an assembly or you're writing in, you know, something that wasn't assembly and anything that wasn't assembly was, you know, high level. And the idea there being, in my mind, at least the delineation, um, and, and it maybe it's, it's moved over time, but if you write a line of code and it produces sort of an arbitrary number of machine instructions, then you're now writing in, in a high level language. Got it. Okay. So in a line of C code, just as an example, or Java or whatever, you can write, you know, A plus B divided by C times D, you know, to the power two, whatever, right? Whatever. That's that's one line, but it's many, 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 you know, assembly operations to do that, depending on your architecture. Um, and the compiler now is is able to target different backends. So if you write, you know, and we'll talk about sort of C, C++ here for a second. If, you, if you're writing in C or C++, you can compile against many different processors. So you could write one program that runs on ARM or on x86 because the compiler is picking up your code and, and we won't go into bit, but building, sort of finding the symbols, building a syntax tree, and it knows how to emit the proper machine code for you know executing that program. And it does, it can do that with many passes depending on the compilers, but, but many compilers also emit a sort of intermediate representation. So even different front ends so you could say like an llv llvm you'll see things that can target you know the llvm ir intermediate representation which is something to mean the sort of machine code assembly and the high level language that lots and lots of front ends can compile into and then there's a specific set of operations and libraries and team working on taking that intermediate representation and compiling it down to your specific final machine and so then that's called the back end so you have the front end compiling it to intermediate representation and then the back end taking it from intermediate representation to a specific class of processor got it i see so if you wanted to write a new language you could you could you could create a language that compiles to the llvm immediate representation and then you'd be guaranteed that it would run on all these different processors and not only that, you're also going to benefit from a bunch of optimizations that the sort of like imagine loop unrolling. So you write a loop in in this intermediate representation, and now the sophisticated folks across all these languages, economies of scale kind of thing can implement loop unrolling or um, some stuff we're going to talk about later, but you know, can implement it at the IR level, and then you can benefit from it. Got it. Cool. That makes sense. So now you mentioned Java as well. Uh, Java does, does, you know, uh, gets a special shout out here, which is uh, that when Java is compiled, and this starts to say, you know, these are words we use, but <laughs> there's no requirement that it has to map cleanly. So Java also targets sort of an intermediate representation called the the uh, JVM, the Java Virtual Machine bytecode, and so it does get compiled, and it has all this, you know, optimization and stuff that can happen. And then it produces uh, basically a machine code. But the machine it targets is the, the Java virtual machine, not an individual processor. And when it was first developed, this was a huge boon because now you talk about portability, you can run on anything that there was a JVM for, the JVM for. And yeah, but LLVM yeah. wasn't really a, a big time. So, you know, you know, again, times change. But at the time, this was like seen as like a really big thing. And um, Sun Microsystems at the time, you know, were sort of sort of pushing that, hey, uh, Java really, you know, runs on, I forget, they had an ad, you know, some obscene number of devices and, you know, has this ability. And so there, 
you're compiling it down. And then the Java virtual machine has an implementation per you know, kind of architecture. So it has a, a, an ARM implementation and it has an x86 implementation. And the implementation of that virtual machine is to take that bytecode and pretend it emulates, right? Emulates this sort of conceptual computer that is like a, almost like a lowest common denominator. But on some processors, it may be able to be very efficient with a certain operation and others not, but you don't have to worry about that because, you know, it's sort of just handled for you. And um, all of the standard libraries can have sort of special treatment or efficiencies added. And so um, this was a very interesting approach, but it sort of threads the line here where you have, uh, it's not a scripting language, we'll talk about that as in a second, but it's not a true compiler in that there's still an emulator, a virtual machine, as it were, that sits in the middle here. Uh, and and sort of that's the program that's actually running. So that program is running your program. Um, and so the compiler is not targeting a machine. The compiler is targeting, well, it is targeting a machine, but it's not targeting a physical machine. So if I understand correctly, right? So the difference is with LLVM, you're going to this immediate representation, but then you're, 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 uh, instantly going to machine code. And so now you have machine code that can only run on uh, that architecture. But with Java, you're still going to this intermediate format, but you're not doing that second step to go to machine code uh, at compile time. You're doing it at runtime. Yeah, so the intermediate representation is not really executed, right? There's no program. Well, again, you could could write one, but the, the intention isn't that there's a program that runs the intermediate representation versus in Java that there is a program, the JVM that runs your, you know, JVM bytecode. Got it. Okay. So then now we get to, to, to sort of uh, scripting and scripting and interpreters. The idea is, is sort of similar. It's very rhyming, which, uh, uh, you know, basic was this way. Other things are this way. And that is, Rather than a compiler, you're running a program that needs to work per architecture, but that program is doing all of the work at runtime of executing your script. So it's converting the symbols you wrote into, uh, or the letters you wrote into symbols. It's building whatever it needs to, to be able to execute it. So if you're you know setting a variable name, like Jason was mentioning, it's keeping track of that but it's doing it sort of fresh every run. And so it's opening it up. And if you have, as an example, you know, a typo halfway down, you're going to find out about it, out about it, a down your, your program's execution or whatever. And so it's not attempting to, uh, in this sort of level zero, it's not attempting to do anything other than just sort of execute your script, right? So if you've ever written Python and you have a you know, typo at the bottom of your program and your whole program runs and then doesn't output, you know, the answer because it crashes at the end. This is happening. It's not trying to compile. It's not trying to look ahead. It's just there is the program that's running per architecture is uh, parsing the script input at runtime. Yeah, I mean, you can, this this is starting to really boggle my mind now that I'm thinking about it. Like in Python, you can open the interactive interpreter and you can actually have, you can write if statements and for loops and anything you can write in Python, you can write in there. And so you can actually like write a for loop in that for loop, have a break if a certain condition is met and then keep going. 
And so like Python has to kind of remember that like you put that break there, but it doesn't really know what's going to happen after the break because like you you literally haven't written it yet. And so that's to kind of keep track of all of these things while you're while it's interpreting what you're writing. It's also mm, not that it's impossible in other places, but it becomes much more straightforward to things like Python loves to do, which is like modify definitions on the fly, right? So like changing variable names to, to another type or to even modifying functions that are on a class because all those things are sort of held in memory, right? Like the the sort of the processing, the compilation goes into memory and is just held and is done sort of in real time, like at, at execution. And so modifying that stuff is more obviously, you know, straightforward to implement uh, more not obvious but it's it, you can kind of envision how you would do that if it's like a thing sitting in ram versus if you've compiled it into something that you emitted to the disk right and you're you're sort of executing it out of read only memory um and again there's lots of things that blur these lines but yeah so scripting in if when people sort of think about it it can be slower because at runtime you have to do more right you have to convert the mapping you don't need to know that you know, your variable name is some complex, you know, set of underscores. Uh, when you're doing the compile, you just map it to, this is the first variable I've seen. So it's variable lookup table entry zero, right? And it's literally just a pointer or just an index zero. And then every time you see that, you're keeping track of it. But in the final program, it, it all gets taken away, right? Because it's just everything points to the right spot and all those things are resolved. When you're doing scripting though, when you're marching down the program, you, that table has to live in memory and you have to go do that lookup, right? Oh, Jason's most complicated, very long named, but not meaningful variable that has to get parsed, which is a lot of characters <laughs> uh, and has to get that mapping to take place every time it's seen sort of like at runtime. And so this gets to why people kind of say scripting would be slower. But as Jason mentioned, the advantage is because execution is happening at like, you know, kind of while you're doing it and all these steps are, you can also modify the steps and it becomes very easy to do and to interactive and to kind of see what's happening and, um, you know, very straightforward. Yeah, that makes sense. I believe, I believe if you, um, your machine code is loaded into the process memory that like you can't touch. Like if you start writing in the chunk of memory where your machine code went, it'll, the the you know like they'll they'll assume that you're trying to do something nefarious or something or a mistake, but but in Python there's probably no way to catch that. A lot of early viruses did this like self modifying code. So they you know people screen them, they look normal, but then they get modified to do something that looks that is nefarious. You know at at execution, um, yeah. A, a lot of people, a lot of systems will try to stop or prevent that and assume that you were making a mistake and at best preventing you from doing something you really weren't supposed to do. Yeah, that makes um, sense. But yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's mind bendy stuff when you start talking about that. Okay, two couple other things I wanted to cover briefly. You'll hear about. So one is a uh, JIT, which is just in time. So for scripting languages, all is not lost about these runtimes. So in Python, as an example, or other things, you can have a a JIT which says, "Hey, I've noticed that this piece of script has been executed. This function has been called many, many, many times. So I'm going to rather than every time I get to it." do all the parsing and all the work again, it can effectively do a compilation step, right? It can go ahead and resolve all of those things. It can, things, it can even go, could do, you know, implementing them all the way out to machine code or the operations or whatever, right? Um, Java has this as well, well for bytecode, but basically at runtime, 
sort of observing that you're about to do something or that you've done it before and pre-computing and storing those results so that the next time you do it, time you do it, you get your execution. That That's sort of the concept. I'm probably doing a bad job, but of, of just in time, right? It's just in the nick of time, I've provided you a, you know, optimized thing to run. Um, right. And-, and you could do the loop unrolling and all of that stuff. Like if you know that this for loop's only going to execute it four times, or you, you don't know it, but you're confident, then you could unroll it. Um, and you could even do code analysis to do it, right? Again, you know, extend these all have like research directions or implementations and various, you know, features. Um, and then the last thing I want to talk about that that also blurs the line, though, is something that's actually interesting. I've never seen it, which is profile guided optimization. So some of these drag races, I guess you call them between sort of scripting languages and compile languages will show, hey, actually, this Python code is a lot faster because in this case, the you know, during runtime, Python, the the interpreter observed these behaviors and performed this optimization that you couldn't have known a priori. It had to be known sort of like at runtime and it gains this advantage. It's true. That, that can happen. That is a thing. Um, and it can be really cool. In compiled languages, um, we're starting to see some work around profile guided optimization, which is run your program and you record a bunch of statistics about what what how many times various loops by default was this if statement skipped 99% of the time and even compilers do some of this uh, sorry even processors do some of this to help with optimization but sort of recording statistics about what was executed how much and and various sort of things and and that the sort of call it happy path you make a guess i'm just going to assume this is going to be true and i'll add a little check if it's true i'm going to gain this boost and if it's not true then I'll have to execute something a little slower, right? No free lunch. Um, but it does this via a profiling. So you've profiled your code. And now this optimization uses that profile of the code as a sort of almost second compilation. So you run the compilation, you ha- insert all these sort of like, you know, uh, extra hooks to measure stuff. You look at the output and then you run compiling again that uses that as input and it's able to sort of be more thoughtful about how to perform certain optimization steps of compiling. Cool. So if people are really excited about compilers and interpreters and they want to work on the Python VM or the C++ like GCC or something, where does most of that work take place? My guess is probably like government programs and giant companies and stuff, but like, like what would be your career advice for them? So there are folks working at, you know, big company, big tech companies that you sort of hear, right? If we if we sort of name some, um, you know, Dart, you know, at Google or Swift at Apple, or um, I think Java is still at Oracle. Um, you know, obviously those places have teams that work on these things and you can go work on them. Um, but I think a lot of it also happens as, as hobbyists do stuff, um, you know, in university, this is uh, compilers and interpreters is, is a course you can take. Um, if you want to do it as a job, what I don't know is like how you as a job without working at a big company that has a vested interest in it, you sort of get paid to make a very cool LLVM and in intermediate representation optimization. Um, definitely something you can do. And if you have a company that will sponsor that work, which is, you know, a hard, maybe a hard thing to find. I don't know that it's it's not like writing a game where you just do it and then people pay you for, <laughs> for good output. It'd be very difficult to write like a new language that someone would pay you just to like consult on. 
um, uh, my opinion. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I think you're right. I think even if if you set out to you know create a new language, uh, I think even then I would probably start by working for one of these big companies. I think like I want to say uh, one of the military labs is like the chief person on GCC, like Sandia or one of these labs. I don't remember, but but basically, uh, you know, for all of these things, LLVM, Swift, GCC. You know, look at who their biggest sponsors are, right? Look at who um, the the um, domain name of the email addresses that are most prevalent on the mailing list, right? It's not hard to figure out who is actually putting in um, most, you know, of the effort for that particular compiler or interpreter. And then once you know that, then then uh, then it's then it's a matter of you know creating changes, uh, you know. It, Basically, doing that doing that job kind of pro bono for a little while and proving yourself to those folks, um, you know, becoming ingratiated um, by those folks, and then and then reaching out to them and saying, "Hey, I want to do this full time." Um, and so, if that's something that interests you, that's that's the path uh, forward to do that. You don't need to be a master propagandist um, <laughs> or anything like that. Uh, it's a very simple formula. Just just uh, put put some uh, sweat equity into that. Uh, you know, talk to the folks who are also putting in that sweat equity and, and that's how you can do it. I'll give a two, two shout outs quickly. Um, you know, for, I don't think this is the first thing you do, right? Write programs for a while before attempting to write your own programming language. Right. Probably, probably a good move. Uh, but two, two resources that I think are really useful here, um, many more, but you know, uh, people would have recommended the dragon compiler book before, but yeah, oh, I never made it through it. Uh, anyways, <laughs> um, the first one is by, and I might not say the last name correctly, but Robert Nystrom, Nystrom, and he wrote a uh, game design patterns, like design patterns for games. That's very useful. Um, definitely check that out. I think you can read it free online, but also read free online crafting interpreters. So crafting interpreters.com. And I think there's like you know, a, a web version, but I think there's like actually now a physical book as well. And you, I, I haven't sort of gone through it and like implemented it myself. It's on my, my to-do list. Um, but definitely a way of talking about how would you add an interpreter, implement polymorphism? How would you, you know, handle variables and sort of building up your own programming language uh, and sort of, you know, not going to be, I don't think state of the art, you know, pushing the envelope, but, but definitely giving you a flavor for this, which I think is really useful to know how, how some of this stuff works. And then, in the sort of opposite side of that, I, I mentioned it, but nandgame.com. There's also NAND to Tetris, but nandgame.com is really easy to just jump in and start showing you like, starts a, like one touch too low maybe for what we talked about today, where how do you build a NAND gate? How do you make an OR gate from a NAND gate? But quickly jumps in, basically how do you build, um, you know, th- the actual processor components um, the parts that do math, how do, how do the bits get added and why is it that a certain machine code byte evokes a certain behavior, um, from, from the pieces of the computer, the actual silicon anyways. And so you can just like play it in your web browser and, you know, sort of go at it. You might have to Google some help. I did. <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, but, but you know, how do you implement registers? How do address buses work? Anyway, so that's nandgame.com. We'll put them both in the show notes, but two, yeah, two sort there's, of like useful resources. There, there's a modern take on this game too called uh, Turing Complete. Oh, I've seen this, but I, I didn't want to pitch it because I haven't tried it. I haven't tried it either. So I haven't tried Nand to Tetris either, but 
Um, but it, uh, it has amazing reviews. I just looked it up. It's overwhelmingly positive. Steve reviews 2,200 reviews. So um, that is a really good uh, endorsement by the community. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people say it's another good resource. So I- I'll put it in the show notes too. Cool. All right. Um, thank you, Patrick, for going into into a ton of detail here. Um, it's an awesome episode. Thank you, Jessica, for recommending the topic. Phenomenal topic. Um, and uh, thank you to all of our patrons who are uh, you know kind of supporting the show, helping us reach new people. Um, I was looking through my email the other day about something kind of unrelated, and I stumbled upon a email from a listener. Um, a while back who, uh, who we were able to help them, uh, you know, find their first job. I mean, that stuff's really inspiring. Continue to send that to us. We read all of them. Sometimes we read them twice. Sometimes we find them years later and read them again. Um, so thank you everybody out there for listening, for supporting the show, and we will see you next time. Music by Eric Barndoller. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide uh, attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I and uh, share alike in kind. <laughs>